today I want to begin a brand new series that's titled The Cry of the City. And so my sermon is also titled, the very title of the series. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Christianity is facing a huge crisis. Society, it's insulating itself against the influence of the gospel. When you see worldviews like humanism surface, which simply supports the idea that we human beings are the focal point and there's no space or role of God in our lives, it's very dangerous. When you see truth or statements surface to insulate people against objectivity like your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, it becomes very frightening. How do you deal with these things? This is nothing new. The Apostle Paul had to tackle things like this in his day. And so in verse 16 of Acts 17, Scripture says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what these, this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Take a step back. This chapter in the New Testament is one of the most profound chapters that shows the relevance of the Christian faith. And so we must be able to understand it and model ourselves after it. Paul is one of my favorite Bible characters. Next to Jesus, Paul. And I must say that the reason why I just really admire Paul is the fact that he was not only brilliant and not only allowed the Holy Spirit to use him in what's referred to as the charismatic gifts of the Spirit, but the guy was fearless. He didn't back down. I mean, if there would be such a, a fusion of words, he was like a, a thug preacher. I mean, he just, he, he just didn't back down from difficulty. And here in this text, something's going on in his heart. If I was there standing next to Paul while he was there in the city of Athens, I would say to him, what do you feel? Because we tend to act and do things based on what we feel, what we understand to be true or relevant, and how it moves us. Verse 16 tells us what Paul felt. The longer Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy, the angrier he got. All these idols, the city was a junkyard of idols. Paul was, he was alone in Athens. His minister companions, Silas and Timothy, they were 
en route to getting to him. And as he walked about the city and saw all these idols, we must understand what Athens was like. This was the city that was known for its cultural richness. It used to be known for its being a political powerhouse, but that shifted. In fact, this is the cradle of democracy where it was established, Athens. Three to four hundred years before the birth of Christ, it's where Aristotle lived. It's where Plato lived. It's where Socrates lived. And maybe I should have said it in the reverse order based on their time. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle lived there. This was the place where these learned men and, and, and remarkable philosophers lived. And so Athens became known as the beacon of oratory. It became known as the bastion of literature and architecture and intellect. That's where it reigned. In fact, Athens was full of great architecture, massive temples. Reflected their pride, their ego. Boast of the fact that this is a cultural capital of the world. Ancient Athens, that's where the famous, you know, Acropolis was. It was about eight years ago that Marlinda and I, on one of our anniversaries, we decided to take this specialized tour. It was titled, Ten Days in the Footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And so we flew into Athens, and we toured this ancient city and other relics. And what Paul saw in his day, you can still see to some degree today. Statues of idols. It was no longer looked upon as deities that one worshipped, but it was looked upon more of a tourist attraction. This is not some, some fairy tale that we are reading about in Acts 17. This is what's happening now in terms of how aspects of ancient Athens that are still there today looks. But... What was Paul feeling when he saw this? He was grieved. He was troubled. He was angry. He was angry because he saw people worshiping and sacrificing animals to idols, thinking that these idols were gods. Paul was angry because of the level of their spiritual blindness and the emptiness of their souls. Paul was angry because of their moral bankruptcy. He was angry because he knew that if you leave the moral bankruptcy unaddressed, what people like Voltaire said will be true. Voltaire said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Paul's day is no different than our day. Just days ago in New York State, the so-called Reproductive Health Act was passed, which this law, and reflective of the state of New York and many states in our nation, including our own, this law extended more and more freedom and latitude to abortion, so that now Nurse practitioners and midwives can perform abortion. And abortion now can be performed even after 24 weeks of pregnancy. If you have someone that has gone through the pain of abortion, feeling trapped as if no other way out, 
I'm not condemning you. I'm simply citing the fact that our world needs the anchor of God's word to help us know how to live lives that are thriving, vibrant lives. David tells us in Psalm 139 and verse 13, in speaking to the issue of life and where it starts, he says to God, you are the one who put me together inside my mother's body. And I praise you because of the wonderful way you created me. And so what Paul saw in Athens, ancient Athens, it was frightening. All the idols, he says, it was, a, it was just the, the city scattered and filled with idols. Billy Graham says this, in a decadent society, the will to believe, to resist, to contend, to fight, to struggle is gone. In place of this will to resist, there is the desire to conform, to drift, to follow, to yield, and not give up. So, what we feel is the starting point where we need to then recognize God gives us, gave us feelings about the city in which we live. The city where we work, the city where our children go to school, the city where we play sports, the city where we shop. God gave us feelings and those feelings must translate not just to us feeling bad or feeling as if, who am I? I'm just a nobody. I'm inconsequential. I'm insignificant. Paul didn't have that perspective. Though he was just one guy. So the question then must follow. What do you do? Paul had to do something. And he started with their thinking, with their belief structure. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. I highlighted three words in this verse so that you can see there's something about it that we can't overlook. He reasoned with them. And he distinguished then First in the synagogue, or what we would call today the church. And in the church, he met Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And so Paul's then, when he reasoned, he's dealing with their thinking. Because Paul is saying, in essence, that, wait a second. The city is a reflection of the church. If the church is not doing anything in their city to conform the city, to influence the city, to shape the city, then we have to ask ourselves this foundational question, what does the church believe? Believe, what are your beliefs? He may be asking them. And he's reasoning with them saying, what do you believe about God? Because what you believe about God shapes what you allow, what you accept, what you practice, what you condone. It influences your lifestyle. It influences the culture in which you live. And then the scripture says, Paul went to the marketplace, the place of commerce, the city center, the shopping where that takes place, where business is conducted. You know, it's, it's, he went right to the hub, the life center of the city. And Paul's thinking is that Christianity is not something for private dealings only. He, he did not succumb to the thinking that you, 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 you stay there in the four walls of the church. That's where, you know, the voice of your faith should remain. He didn't think that Christianity can't stand up to the public scrutiny or public questioning. Oh no. Paul recognized that our faith is defendable. 
Our faith is able to stand toe-to-toe with every scientist, with every business person, with every individual that may have a different worldview and walk through reasonable ways and reasonable responses to their technical questions. And by the way, that's exactly why we're having that 10-week course called Defending Your Faith. Because you need to be equipped in such a way that you don't have to be silent when people say things to you that are ridiculous or say things to you that are thorny. Or they raise their legitimate questions. Questions such as, does God exist? If there's, since there's so much pain in the world, how could God be good? And then they may throw that question at you. And if you don't know how to respond to them in a reasoned way, in a way, reason that, in a way that could be supported, not in a way that, well, that's just what the Bible says. Oh, that's just what I believe. When you hold to that kind of posture, the latter, they dismiss you as someone that's irrelevant. You have no value. And they'll, they'll be absolutely right. And so they push the church into the church buildings and they call us out when there's pain in society, like someone died, someone's murdered. And then after they go through that, they push us back into the four walls. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. We don't belong there because the Christian faith is for the world, both the private and public spaces. But what Paul was saying when he used this little word, or the little word is used to describe Paul's actions, Paul reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. In other words, Paul is saying that these spaces are very, very different one from the other. And it requires different approaches if you're going to communicate anything about God in those respective areas. For example, when you look at the church, we have similar worldviews. I mean, most of us in this particular gathering right here, in this church edifice, most of us are Christians, and so our worldview, the way we see the world and interpret the world, is pretty similar. But in the marketplace, the worldviews are dissimilar. And Paul knew how to be able to speak to people when he's in the, the church, and he knew how to speak to people when he's in the marketplace. It's different approaches. A few months ago, I was, I was speaking at a conference at Harvard. And when you're speaking there, and this is a multi-generational, multi-worldview place, multi-faith place in terms of Jewish, you know, atheists, which they refer to as humanists, you know, agnostics. And so my starting point's different. I, I don't say open your Bibles. I don't say, you know, I, I don't, that's not my starting point. Because when you have two different spaces and you have to present, the starting point in the church is with the Bible. The starting place in the marketplace is with beliefs. That's what Paul did when you read through Acts 17. He didn't tell when, when he went to the marketplace. He didn't say, well, the Bible says this. He didn't reference that because that's not their point. That's not their belief structure. I remember a math professor of mine many years ago when I first came to faith in Christ. He said to me, I was 21 years old at the time, just about one year old in my relation with God. He said to me, David, I was witnessing or sharing my faith with uh, with this atheist professor that's here at Stevens Institute of Technology. And, and I started talking to him, and I, and I said, the Bible says this. And he said, he said wait a second. He said, wait. he said to me, wait a second, time out, time out, time out. I'm not opposed to you talking to me about the Christian faith, but please don't start with the assumption that I believe in the Bible. He said, now continue. And so all of a sudden, my, my friend had to then have a different starting point. And that's what I want you to be able to know, whether you're in the church setting or in the marketplace, that your approach is different. 
And you have to be very versatile. In the marketplace, the starting point is with their beliefs, as I mentioned. And so when we recognize that, we have a response. Also, in the church, we must see that the approach is there's an authoritative presenter. The presenter who's teaching, like someone like myself, must be well-learned, well-versed in the topic. Not only academically, but morally, their lifestyle. So it helps. In the marketplace, the platform or the approach is a relational presenter. They don't care about my lifestyle. Unless I'm a hypocrite, blatantly. They don't care about my academic background. So it's the, the, the table is level. We're peers. Regardless of the difference in training and knowledge. So my relationship is what gives me the right to speak to them. No relationship, no audience. And so we have to understand approach. In the church, community exists. You know me. You know I've been married this July will be 35 years. You know my wife. You know we have two daughters. You know the oldest one's married, the youngest one's single. You know a lot of things about me. You see my life. So that creates a rapport automatically. In the marketplace, community is needed. They don't know you. They don't know your life. Whether they see you at work, they don't know what you do after work. They don't know if you're a serial killer. They have no idea. They have no idea. And so, in order to be able to recognize how Paul reasoned, he had to have the, the mindset and the framework to understand he's in two different spaces. Synagogue is one dimension. That is the church. The marketplace is another dimension. It doesn't make you schizophrenic. It just makes you have a different set of starting points and assumptions. So I want you to see how vital it is. And so Paul recognized that when you deal with worldviews that are different, there could be a clash right away. Just like in our nation's capital a few days ago, this, you know, this particular picture went viral. And it wasn't, the clash was on many levels. Not only was there a difference in their political views, and there's a difference in the race of the Native American and the white teenage boy, and there was a difference ideologically. There was a difference, you know, the, you know, the teenager was Catholic and the Native American had a different worldview, and he's there focusing on his tribal perspective and, and marching and protesting about the fact that, hey, our interests are important also here in the capital. And so I want you to see that if there's not, here's something that's very important though, when worldviews come together, if you don't have a foundation of mutual respect and honor, one to the other, there'll be a clash. And so Paul, he used this word, or this word is used to describe Paul, he reasoned with them. Wave at me if you're still with me. I want you to understand. Our country is very diverse, even from a religious platform. In 2017, the Pew Research Center, they distinguished the, the religious landscape of America. And we all know there's Hindus, there's Muslims, there are Catholics, there are Protestants, and there are different shades of each of those groups. But what I want you to understand and hone in on is this large piece of the pie titled unaffiliated, 22.8%. 
That category, defined as such by the Pew Research Center, it fits people who self-labeled or who admitted, this is how you ought to reflect on me or refer to me when it comes to the matters of religion. So unaffiliated represents atheists, agnostics, and those who say, I have no faith position at all. In fact, the Pew Research Center calls those, the last category in the unaffiliated, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, no faith position of all. And I want us to hone in on this because that swath or that piece of the pie in terms of the religious landscape in our nation is growing. It's growing because in 2008, only 16.1% of the nation were atheists, agnostics, or categorized as nuns, the unaffiliated. In 2012, it was 19.6%. And here we are in 2019, and we see it then, even perhaps a little bit larger now, 22.8% as reported as of, tw- as of 2017. Now, you may say, well, what are you emphasizing that about? Pew Research Center drilled a little bit deeper and then queried the atheists, the agnostics, and those who have no faith posture and said, Why are you guys atheists? Why are you guys agnostics? Why do you guys have no faith affiliation? 60% of them said this. The questioning of religious teachings is is a very important reason for our lack of affiliation. You may say, well, what in the world does that have to do with me? This is Sunday morning. I don't need to hear all that. Oh, you better listen. Because Christianity will become extinct And we are the foundation to the next generation of Christ followers. And if we don't get this thing right, there is no following of Christ. And then hell becomes the destination of a greater percentage of people. Why? Because what the atheists, agnostics, and the unaffiliated are saying is that when we have questions, technical questions, questions that, that hinge on faith, does God exist? Is there life after death? Is there heaven and hell? You know, you know, why are you Christians always seem angry when it comes to matters of sexuality? And if we don't have answers for them, they say it's our lack of answers that makes them become atheists and agnostics and unaffiliated. So in other words, if you are not informed as to what to say, how to respond in a reasoned way, not in a dogmatic, not in a self-righteous, not in a preaching way. When you reason with people, you can't be dogmatic, can't be self-righteous, can't be preaching. You have to be able to walk them through a way that helps to shape the way they think and provide answers to why they're in the situation or why they hold to what they hold to as a view. And it's a give and take, a dialogue. They say, If you can't answer my questions or don't provide any reasoned response to my questions, then I become a humanist or atheist or the agnostic or the unaffiliated. And so we play a role in whether or not people transition from that posture to become Christ followers. Let me put it a different way. Sometimes you look at adults and they're underutilized in their potential. Their income bracket is on a lower end, and they're very smart. And you wonder why is it that they're not able to climb the ladder economically or climb the ladder socially or have greater influence, and then you look back a little bit to see how their parents parented them. 
Do what I tell you to do. Don't ask any questions. Sit down. Just follow my orders. The parent created a child that's a follower. They created a child that becomes someone who can't lead. They created a child that does not understand how to reason through or defend their position intellectually or to unpack what their responses are because they silenced the child. And please hear me. I know sometimes it takes a lot of patience not to, not to just say, sit down and shut up. Because your kids will push you right to the edge. You're right there. 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 And if you don't reason with him or her, and it's easy to not reason with them, it takes little time to not reason. You say, just do what I tell you to do because I'm your dad. Or do what I tell you to do because I'm your mom. Or do what I tell you to do or I'll cut off influence financially. And when you do that, I'm not saying that you support sassy kids, but you have to be able to create this healthy tension so you know how to teach your children reasoning skills because it'll shape the rest of the world. So in a preaching context, now here's what you can do. A sermon like this, and I'm not even finished yet, I'm just giving you the appetizer and I'm going to get into the meat. But a sermon like this, for some, you've checked out. Why? Because, pastor, you don't understand. I, my husband's giving me a hard time, or my kids give me a hard time, my wife's giving me a hard time, or look, I just need to feel good. I come to church to just feel good. Give me one of those feel-good sermons. You deserve to feel good. I want you to feel good. I want you to be excited emotionally. And there are times I preach just for that. But then there are other times I have to say, let me take a step back. What I'm doing is not just being a pastor to help assuage and to heal you emotionally and to excite you about life. I get that aspect of my role, but I'm also a social architect. If I don't help to position you for that you can be able to stand up with confidence and assurance in the marketplace of our culture, then you're going to just be like a little flower and just quiver and just, just wilt. And whenever someone asks you technical questions, you just dwarf in their midst. And then you don't have the ability to be able to stand up and be able to convince and to in, in, debate and engage in reasoned conversation with people because you feel as if your faith has not equipped you. And when we do that, the church becomes more and more irrelevant in society. And our church becomes more and more relevant in the community. And we then begin to dwarf ourselves and minify, reduce our role and significance. And we wonder, it's the devil. And I'm saying, no! It's not just the enemy. It's that we have not positioned ourselves to thrive in the, in the changing culture. And guess what, Christ Church? We're not going to fall into that category. Well, not on my watch. Not on my watch. I, I want to be relevant. I want to be able to engage in conversation. And I want to be able to have a response that matters. Paul's method must be adopted to fit our cultural context and generation. And what Paul did, he reasoned with people to bring them into faith in Christ. Now, how do you approach things when you reason? A reasoned approach is relationally driven. 
You got to care about the people that you're talking to. And they have to feel that you care about them. Just like my children. If they don't feel that I love them and care about them, they're going to dismiss my conversations with them as irrelevant. They'll just tune me out. Though they may stand there and look respectful, but they've just tuned me out emotionally and I've not been able to influence them. See, a reasoned approach is logically addressed. I didn't become a Christian because, oh, I just, I just knew I was a bad person. And I just, eh, I, just, I just felt like I needed it. No. It was a reasoned approach, a reasoned response. In fact, when I look back, the Christians that were unsuccessful in sharing their faith with me are those who didn't have answers to my questions. And so when I started to pose questions, because I realized there were different shades and types of Christians, not in talking about moral shades, I'm talking about people that really spent time digging through in the scriptures and, and looking at the world around them and having intelligent, logical answers. Logical answers is that, you know, when, when a guy comes to me and I say, hey man, he asked me, so what do you think? One guy came up to me one day, he said to me, you know, after a church service, he said, uh, me and my girlfriend, she's angry at me. And we woke up this morning, she was just upset. She just kept being angry with me. So it suggests they live together. Now I can easily take a posture that says, you know, the Bible tells us that sex outside of marriage is, is not God's way. Sure, the Bible says that, but that's not a reasoned response. I said, have you ever considered the idea that maybe your girlfriend feels this sense of your ambivalence towards her? So what do you mean by that? She's unsure as to the nature of your relationship with her and where it's going, and she lacks the sense of safety because you've not established any covenant with her. I said, women need security. And you are having sex with her whenever you want, so you don't present to her this request saying, would you be my wife? And she thinks by you having sex with her, that one day you'll pop the question. She doesn't realize the very thing she's doing makes you never want to pop the question. So when I start reasoning and letting him understand that there are five stages in every relationship. You want to have a healthy relationship? He said, yeah, I do. I said, well, there are five stages. And when you skip steps and avoid stages, you create problems in your relationship. And so when I say the stages, friendship, dating, courtship, that means you're the only one. Engagement, marriage. I said, the fact that you guys skipped all kinds of steps and just go and live together, you may feel like, well, what's wrong with that? I said, well, you've avoided the getting to know each other, the development, the natural nuances that must take place. And when you jump steps and skip steps and get it all convoluted, you are in a relationship that's going to create a lot of pain. And the reason why God established this, set, this point that fornication you know, or sex outside of marriage is, is a taboo is, is not that God doesn't want you to have sex. He wants you to have a lot of sex. But he wants you to have it in a, in a way where it's going to be the best for you emotionally and creates you know, great, great, great future and it'll cause your relationship to, to last and you move into more layers of satisfying sex. And so when I reason, it's a different response. Now, it doesn't mean he may say, well, uh, I'm still going to shack up. But I didn't communicate to him in any disrespectful or dishonoring way 
and he knows I'm here for him. That's what Paul did, a reasoned approach. So a reasoned approach is not only logically addressed, it's also culturally relevant. Why, why, why should I consider what you're talking to me about? How is it relevant to my life? A reasoned approach is intellectually informed. The worst thing to do is talk to someone that doesn't know what in the world they're talking about. And you just sit there and you what are they talking about? It makes absolutely no sense. They don't do any reading, no studying, and they're going to try to advise you. It's crazy. They use words out of context. It doesn't have the meaning that they think it has. And you're talking to them, and they're speaking in this quiet way that seems like they're persuading you, and they're making no impact whatsoever. Anybody ever been in a conversation with people like that? I mean, and it's very, you want to get away from them as quickly as possible because... They're insulting your intelligence. So that means that if we're going to be Christians that have relevance, you have to do like what Billy Graham says. Billy Graham says the effective preacher is the one who has the Bible in one hand and Time magazine in the other. You have to be able to know the culture. And so when you turn off the news, I don't want to hear news, too much bad news. There may be a place for that, but you don't know the score. You don't know what people are going through. You're detached from them. And so even when our government shut down, the backlash was they were detached. Both parties, Republicans and Democrats, detached. And so when they started to see that, wait a second, the people are hurting. The government opened up. And so let's pray for our government. Don't, don't pick sides. Pray for our government because I don't care which side you're on politically. We need God. And we need God's help. So we also re- must see that the approach is conversationally presented when it's reasoned. It's not preachy. You don't, don't, don't make your voice funny. Don't say things like God. When you, no, that's not how people speak. Nobody speaks like that. You sound like an idiot. Nobody knows what you're talking about. I mean, it's, I, mean I remember our, in kids' church when I was writing my book, uh, you know, raising children that pray, I asked some of the teachers, give me some stories of little kids. And they said, oh yeah, we always pray with little kids and we ask one of them to pray every week and different one will pray a different week. And every time we ask Billy to pray, Billy always, he's happy and then he deepens his voice. He says, God, would you come? And they said, well, why does Billy do that? Because in Billy's mind, when you talk about God, you got to deepen your voice. I don't, I'm not going to mess with his theology as long as he's praying, he's good. But I just want you to see that when you have conversations with people, don't get all mystical and weird. Because when you do that, people are going to think you're weird. And they don't want anything to do with you. And it's not God that they are unhappy with. It's you. But what I'm saying is that this is a conversation. Now, if you notice that when I teach and I teach in series, I start off at the basic level, not to insult your intelligence, but to bring you on a journey. And I want to journey in this theme over the course of 2019. Not every week you're going to hear me talk about it, but at the end of 2019, we're going to be so equipped to be able to know in whom we believe. And when we speak, we speak with confidence and authority, not dogmatic, not rude, but respectful and loving, because I believe that God's called us to be effective, effective heralds and ambassadors of his kingdom even today. So let me wrap things up by asking this follow-up question, as if I'm asking Paul, what do you keep doing? 
What do you feel? What do you do? What do you keep doing? Well, when Paul was reasoning with those folks in the marketplace, they took him to the Areopagus. It's also known as Mars Hills. And verse 32 tells us what happened. When the people heard about Jesus being raised from the dead, some of them laughed. (laughs) But others said, we will hear more about this from you later. So Paul went away from them. But some of the people believed Paul and joined him. Among those who believed was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and some others. So watch this now. When Paul reasoned with them, they they listened. They had a chance to ask their questions. Then they hit an intellectual stumbling block when he started talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Wait a second, that's just, that's just weird, Paul. How could somebody come back from the dead? And Paul was not thrown off. Scripture says that some believed Paul, they accepted Christ as their Savior. Others did not. But the others that did not, they said, we will hear more about this from you later. In other words, because he reasoned with them, he kept the line of communication open so that they can always have a flow of conversation that's uninterrupted because Paul got angry and said, you idiots, you guys this, or you guys are godless, or you guys are pagans. He didn't use any derogatory term to describe them or speak to them in any insulting way. He reasoned with them. So what do we learn from this? What we learn from this is this. We got to keep on doing what we've been assigned to do by Jesus. He called us to be salt and light in the, in the society. And what some of us have done, and sometimes unconsciously, is that the moment we become Christ followers, we put these barriers around ourselves and we cut off all the unsaved relationships. Oh, I can't hang out with you. You smoke too much weed. They used to buy weed from you before you got saved. Oh, I can't talk with you. You curse too much. You used to curse more than them. Oh, I can't talk. Well, you guys drink all the time and go clubbing. They used to go in your car to the club and drink. And so now you become so sanctified. I'm not suggesting you should go clubbing. I'm not suggesting you should curse like a sailor. All I'm saying is that don't remove yourself from the marketplace. Don't remove yourself from the public square. Don't sequester yourself inside the four walls of the church like a refugee from the kingdom of, from, from the kingdom of darkness. No, be salt and light. And so to do that, it requires us changing. You know how many times I've changed? I used to preach in a clerical collar. If you look back at the early days, then I preached in a suit and tie. Then I preached in, in just a sport jacket. Then I preached like this. No, I'm not going to take off more clothing, but I just want you to see the idea is that I've had to change my style. I've had to change even at times my starting point. If we want to be a church that is a church that's healthy and healthy churches grow, not only in our relationship with God, but we also grow numerically, that means I have to throw out out the net wide. And sometimes we may start, I may start a sermon and I may not start with a Bible verse. I may start with a problem in society. And you have to realize when that happens, it's not, oh, Pastor Dave is losing his edge. Oh, Pastor Dave, he's not biblically centered. Oh, he's backslidden. No, it's I'm being someone 
that knows the reality that you will not invite your marketplace friends to our house, to this house, if I don't know how to speak to them and recognize that I can't start with certain assumptions that may be misguided and incorrect. And I want you to be mindful that for us as a church to be able to keep doing what we're doing, we got to change. And change is not easy. Change is not pleasant. And I want you to to walk with me as we journey through another period of change in our lives. And you may say, well, what's it going to look like? I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know. We got to experiment. We have to trust the Holy Spirit. And we have to be so Jesus-centered. And we have to not be so stuck on our methods, but we have to be stuck on our mission. Methods must change. Mission doesn't. Approaches change, but your central thought and central word and gospel message doesn't change. We change the packaging. And so let's journey together as a congregation and saying, God, perfect us. Work in us and work through us. Let's not have our idols of our methods. Let's not turn our methods into idols. Let's get consumed with the message and let's make changes in the methods. Make sense? I want to pray with you as Pastor Markle prepares to come and transition us into our giving time. Father, thank you for helping us to at least begin a conversation on this this topic. I pray that you would help us to grow and to be the church you've called us to be, but more importantly, to be the disciples you've called us to be. Help us not to be afraid or timid when it comes to conversations that must take place in a public square. But help us to be confident and comfortable because we've been well informed. Anoint us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. As a quick segue, last week because of the inclement weather, we didn't get a chance to really give you the last opportunity. And so when we ordered these books, because there's a class coming up called Defending Your Faith. It starts the first Wednesday in February and it's a 10-week class. There's a notebook that you get. You, there's no cost for the class, but there's a cost for the materials. There's a notebook you get for each week's lesson. Two texts, Questioning Evangelism. Engaging people's hearts the way Jesus did. A new kind of apologist. A new kind of person that knows how to articulate and defend their faith. Today is your last day to get everything at discounted price. Because what we did was order extra. And so there were 50 extra packets. or packet, Packets mean the books, all three. And so you can do that in the lobby after the service. Or you can do it online. Afterwards, it goes to whatever the retail price is. Today is the bulk price that we have extended, and so I want to give you first crack at it, all right? And this is also open for teenagers, for, for college students, because if they don't know how to articulate their faith and defend it, then you're going to find them being that, in that category, unaffiliated, and you wonder how they get there, because we missed it. I understand Wednesdays, coming from work, all that stuff, it's tough, but let's realize what's at stake. God bless you.